your medical care, for your housing, for your basic income. Um, <laughs> that's what slavery means. Someone is telling you what to do and they're paying your bills. Um, wouldn't that be nice if someone would just tell me what to do and pay my bills? All I had to do was just work. Sounds like a good deal. Maybe we should keep working toward that, um, <clears throat> uh, Alexandria. Anyway, so um, we're in Ephesians uh, 6, and we've moved past the children 6, 1 through 3 to verse 4, where we have one verse on parents, parents and children. And then we're going to hear slaves and masters from verses 5 through 9. Um, and, uh, and very clearly he says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In Colossians 3, you have the same uh, command, but it's not stated exactly the same way. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Colossians 3 is your parallel passage, 3.16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within. You see the Holy Spirit fills you with the word so that he's not just, it's not just you have it memorized, but you're living it. It's, it's part of your conscience. It's part of your, 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 your life, what you want out of life. And so do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. And I know that's our text for today. And some people uh, will often, Christians will often in America, look for the thing that they can get out of something before they say, God, how can I be relevant to your program? In other words, we'll say, well, pa- Pastor, you're talking today in this first little family Bible hour time about parents and children, but we don't have children at home, so this isn't helpful to us. And um, that's because... The Bible isn't set up as a uh, how-to book for a little handbook for you to look up how to handle your thing. Um, This is a household of households. We all have a a stake in each other's success in terms of what we're talking about in verse 4 and our responsibilities to raise children. And and so uh, you, you very much need to pay attention, especially if you don't have kids at home, I think. Especially if you don't have kids at home. Because the people around you do, and you're supposed to bear one another's burdens. Borrow my kids for a couple hours in the afternoon. Let me catch up on work that I'm doing otherwise. Or, um, or just be in prayer. And I'm not telling you your duty is to watch my kids at all. I'm, I'm joking around about that. But you would want to, to partner with me in prayer because I've got five American children in 2019. Okay, just from personally, my example, five American kids in 2019. And um, there are four or five things that just have to happen for these little Christians to, to, to finish well for the Lord's sake. There are four or five things, and the world around us is promoting a popular morality against all of those things. Self, self-determination and responsible labor. The world is militating against that with video games and entertainment and fun as the goddess that all the children chase. Fun is the only thing that we really want in life. So if we can have fun while we run around and do some exercise, that's called sports. At least they're getting some exercise. They're learning team building. But they're, no, they're playing. They're having fun. And it's fine. But that's the big objective of life is that the kids are sports players. Okay? Four or five things you've got to learn. You've got to learn to work hard. You have to marry well. You have to uh, keep sexuality in marriage and do that well. And if you don't, death, death, the, your life is what should be thriving and, and a blessing is, is very often this walking death, the, 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 the disintegration of civilization. So you can see I'm, I'm up against a huge challenge. I've got to run the gauntlet with five. And, um, and they've got to make their own. This is the most d- difficult part of it. They have to make their own choices. I cannot set this up for them. I can set them up to make the choice, 
but I can't choose for them. And we want to see them thrive. And, and if everybody thought that way, if we all thought that way and, and really sh- shoulder this load together, um, I think we would see um, long-term desirable outcomes of hardworking servants of the Lord Jesus Christ who marry well and raise godly children. And we will have done our job. That's the vision. That's what we're trying to accomplish. That's what Rosalind's trying to do in his household. That's what you can uh, partner with us in prayer. And so thinking through what this looks like, what, what is actually going on in Ephesians 6, 4, it's just one little verse, but there's a lot of information here to kind of juice about what the job is. The fathers, literally, or fathers, do not provoke to anger. Para, par or, or gizo, Para plus orgizo, which, which is to uh, make angry or wrathful, but um, it intensifies it. The, the preposition intensifies the verb. So parogizo par is a strong way of saying making them angry. Don't make your children angry, but rear or bring up or nourish ektrefo. Trefo, again, is a verb, and then you throw ek on the front of it, so it's intensified. And... Um, and out. How, how do you raise out? You're looking at bringing them up to sending them, sort of, to, to raise them up. Um, in the instruction or corrective dis- and corrective discipline of the Lord. Now, my Bible says in the instruction, uh, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, and those are kind of like synonyms. And so I just want to spend a little bit of time on what these nouns mean and, and where they come from. Well, not so much where they come from, but how Paul uses them. And so let's start with the concept of what parents are not supposed to do. It's a very clear general command not to provoke them to anger, not to provoke them to anger or cause them to become angry. Um, What in the world does that mean? What does it not mean? Let's have a little bit of a discussion. What does it mean not to provoke your child to anger? Think about it. You parents, you, you veterans, you old hands, young at heart, but old hands at this, what, uh, what does this mean? Don't provoke them to anger. What's that? Okay, yeah, the anger is a sin, and that's my first thought, is that there is a connection between what the parents do and the child's disobedience of God. See, he picks a category and says anger. But you can generalize it and say, don't cause your children to sin. And that's a no-brainer. So he's got a specific instance of not causing them to sin, not bringing about their sin. Now, what if parents and and adults, adults dealing with children in our country, actually took seriously the responsibility not to make or allow or, well, to to direct their children to, to sin? What if we did that? What would that look like? Now, what would be the responsibility of parents if they're going to not inspire their children to commit personal sin and thought, word, or deed against God? What would parents have to do and be? They'd have to set an example. That's right. That's right. What else? Think with me. Yeah, you've got to discipline them and train them, and so they learn. You've got, you got to teach them. You're getting ahead of me, and we're going we're gonna to juice the other words for, for doing this. But think about, this is the game of what am I thinking, because I'm not good at facilitating discussion. <laughs> um, yeah. 
Okay, yeah, so count, find a way where you're bringing them counsel and you're helping them learn instead of arguing and just back and forth all the time, right? And that's, that's hard to do, is especially as they get older, as they, you know, get up in, up in years, five, six, seven, um, you know. <laughs> it can be hard to do because you're training them to think. And parents that don't train their children to think, guess what their kids haven't learned to do from them? Think. <laughs> So they've learned from someone else how to think, and that's probably going to go bad if you're giving them to the world to train them how to think. So you gotta, they got to learn to use their thinking and reason. And, um, but, but their sin nature hooks up to their reasoning, and all of a sudden they're a little lawyer uh, trying to get their way, right? So, so but what does this look like to, to, to cause to sin, or how would I avoid this? I think I would have to know what sin is. I think I would have to know, for example, that anger is a sin, and that I am setting conditions. So I've got to know something about the Word of God, and I've got to go know God, the God of the Word. So I've got to be a Spirit-filled parent who's filled with the Word by the Spirit so that I can actually know what's right. See, this is um, in context. Therefore, verse 15 of chapter, chapter 5, Be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. This is about wisdom making the most of your time because the days are evil, so then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and therefore be filled by the Spirit. What does God want? Right? And, and so guess what happens when you're not saturated with the Scriptures and you're saturated with the culture? You Christians, we Christians, when we're saturated with what Satan's world says is good instead of what God says is good and holy and right. I had a great conversation yesterday. Christian. Really confused, really concerned, absolutely not thinking they're confused about um, why their pastor preaches against homosexuals. He spends too much time talking about homosexuals, and it's not nice, and it's not kind, and we should be able to love anybody. And the Bible says, love your neighbor, and we shouldn't care about who someone loves. And that's the argument. I said, well, um, did he preach against homosexuals or sexual sin? Did he say this category of people or did he emphasize the problem of sin that puts someone in a category where God is bringing forth his wrath? I mean, which one did he do? And we, didn't, we couldn't get into that because we've got a, a perspective that God wants us to love one another. Here's the rationale. God wants us to love one another. Loving someone is permitting and affirming any choices that they make sexually and therefore, my pastor is unloving and bigoted for saying this is wrong. That's the, I mean, I'm not making a straw man argument. That's the argument of the world, which is straw-brained. We're not thinking. We can't think anymore because we don't know the Word of God anymore. When you bring the Word of God into the conversation, what happens? Well, that was for that culture in that time. And well, after all, we have cars and computers now. We've moved on. So in other words, I don't believe in the Bible anymore. And I believe what Ellen DeGeneres or whoever says. I believe what the popular morality says. Now, if you find yourself personally connected to people who are in lifestyle choices that destroy them, my heart breaks for you just as your heart breaks for them. But one thing we must not do is say sin is not sin. And evil is good, and good is evil. We must not do this. And so thinking clearly about this requires some biblical reflection. It's a little bit of Romans 1, a little 1 Corinthians 6, a little bit of understanding that, wait, 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 wait a second. 
I am not guilty of this category of personal sin. It is uh, uh, against nature, and it is uh, it bothers me to contemplate because of my orientations. Fine. But I'm not God, and I don't define what righteousness is. And this person that's a sinner is just just like me in that he's got a sin nature and he's made in God's image and that image is broken and he still functions in that image and, and he, there's a corruption that's happened and, and that's a sin problem. And we Christians have to hang on to this. Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world. And so we do not endorse any patterns of sin like gossip or or maligning, or bitterness. Well, they really did something, yeah, but you don't have a right to be bitter about it. Or any kind of hatred, except the hatred that we entertain towards sin, our own, and any sin, because sin is what caused the suffering of our Savior on the cross. And we love Him, and so we hate our sin. Let's start with our own sin. And so this is just Christian thinking about sin. S-I-N is the first doctrine to go, by the way. It's the first doctrine where people lose, lose their minds. And so uh, now the conversation is reframed in terms of love. You know what I think from 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, Ephesians 6, 4? I think that real love will never ask someone else to sin. Don't provoke your children to anger. I think real Christian love, I'll never, if I love someone, ask them to sin with me because I'm attracted to them. Sexual sin is not love in a biblical sense. Oh, but that's what they love. No, that's eros. And that's not what we're talking about. So when the sexual libertine argument from Satan's world comes to us and says, you are criticizing and rejecting and judging people for who they love, we are very clear-headed to say, let's ask the question, what do you mean by love? And if the answer is, oh, scoff. I scoff at you for asking that. We all know what love is, okay? That's where the truth is in the details, Love is seeking God's best. Love is going to God first. And with the love He gives us and the power of His Spirit, shedding, shedding that abroad in us, we seek God's best for the other person. And we can love anybody. And the way you treat someone based on that is often de- dependent upon their choices. And how do you respond to the fact that they're making their choices? And so the, the street illustration should... I feel like playing in the street, yeah, but that's not good for you. Don't do that. My advice to you is don't go play in the street. But I really, you don't understand, I was born feeling like playing in the street. Okay, but, but that's, a problem. You're, you're, that's a problem in your lust and your sin nature. It's a problem you have. But, but you need to um, restrain your lusts. And we all have lusts, and we all have to learn to restrain them. Some sins, according to first, uh, Romans chapter 1, um, there's a giving over. Some sins you never want to try. And that's why Satan's attack on our children today in our public schools is to popularize sexuality because we're trying to get them to try and to experiment in, as, in younger and younger ages. And the reason we're trying to get them to experiment is because Satan knows that this is something you can be given over to. And back to provoking your children to anger. If adults did not encourage children to sin in our country, that would be such an amazing thing if we thought of that as a priority. When the Apostle Paul addresses household codes, that's exactly specifically what he goes to, is there are categories of mental attitude, personal sin, like anger, that you must not encourage them toward. You must protect them from. And now we're talking about framing 
relationships and how we behave and structuring things. And so I think what it means not to provoke my child or my children to anger means I've got to think. The last thing I want to do when I feel like provoking someone to anger. Now I'm going to ask you this question. How do you provoke someone to anger? Talk about the biblical view of sin and love and sexuality. (laughs) How do you provoke someone to anger? Oh yeah, yeah, verbal attack. It's hard to beat verbal attack as, a, as an impediment to my peace of mind. Right? Verbal attack gets me pretty good. How about physical? Physical attack. Hurt somebody physically. Um, when I was a little boy, I was uh, regularly spanked by my parents in a good way. Um, and uh, I'll tell you what. The first round sometimes left me angry. Ah. I remember as a little kid gnashing my teeth and raging, getting a spanking from my father. Guess what? He didn't quite get it done. We didn't quite get to the conclusion of the training event because the attitude hadn't yet deflated. I hadn't yet humbled myself. Right? And now I'm not saying he would have had to spank until the deflation happens, okay? Because that's not necessarily the goal. The goal is the deflation, is the, that puffed up arrogance that I'm going to assert my, my will. No, God is God and you're not and you're going to humble yourself before him is the, is the whole goal in my understanding of training these children. And so, what do, so sit down. What happens when you get angry? Well, a lot of things happen. Adrenaline, there's a physical response to this specific problem. And people get addicted to it. They don't like the ultimate outcome, but it's like any addiction to a substance. The initial r- response is nice. Get a little adrenaline pump, a little, oh yeah, it's on, we're going to do this. And, you, and we learn to, to be angry, we become angry, anger junkies. And it destroys your soul, it destroys your body. And... Uh, it's not God's plan for us. How do we do this? Well, I think the, the, the main word, it's, my, it's one of my favorite five-letter words, is you have to think. You have to go into something, especially a correction phase, you have to go into something with an expectation of not getting angry yourself and therefore not start sparking someone else's anger. I think that most of the time when I get angry, um, well, Actually, that, there's lots of times I get angry. Um, when someone else shows me their anger toward me, it doesn't take anything at all for me to flare up at them. Is that true? You know what I mean? Some of the women are like, preach it, pastor. We're back to husbands. Love your wives. Treat, treat your wife. Live with them in an understanding way in First Peter 3. But when someone's angry at you, isn't it like you... It does, you skip 15 or 20 mental, mental steps and all of a sudden you're just, they turn into a werewolf and then you're a werewolf and you're just werewolf on each other. And I like to say a couple of things about anger. Physically, there's something that happens to your body that uh, you kind of go into your um, fight or flight, your adrenaline response. You lose fine motor skills and things. You also lose uh, IQ points. 
I think anger makes us stupid. And so if, if our goal is to train our children in the instruction and the corrective discipline of the Lord, which is my translation here, if that's our goal, as he's going to say that's what you are to do, then you have to avoid anger because this is a thought process. We're, lear- we're learning habits of mind. We're learning to think. And so if we're, all, if we're always angry, we can't think. They can't respond like, like we need them to. So um, there's a lot to be said when there's an anger event for time. Not because the moral issue has been resolved that is the real thing and anger is a distraction. Not because we've gotten to the point of what we're correcting, but because there's adrenaline, because there's the physical response, because there's all this other stuff that isn't helpful. And, by the way, the choice to go there is sinful. So, um, in Ephesians chapter 4, we're told to be angry yet sin not, and don't let the sun set on our anger. Um, I have to confess to you, I've told you before, I'm not sure how to be angry and sin not. But here's my gut on this. If my anger at all involves me, how I'm treated or anything about me, that's going to be angry sin. If I'm angry about something that is completely divorced from me, I'm careful about this because self-righteous, the person with a self-righteous tendency likes to get angry and moral outrage because it, it really makes them feel good but they're nosy about other things. So I, I just want to caution you most of the time when we want to say, well, am I angry and sinning not? No, you're probably sinning. Probably, because we are hung up on ourselves. And so um, I think when we talk about provoking the children to anger, it means that you're driving them by your actions, very often in anger, to a place where you can't train them. And so don't do that. We're supposed to be training them to control themselves. Now think about this. Paul picks one sin to say, don't lead them into this sin. Think about what happens if our children grow up thinking and don't respond in anger whenever they get a a frustrated event. Anytime, if they learn to think through. Think about the difference in life. There is a movie that um, I can't recommend to you. It was recommended to me by one of you, but um, but there are moral th- I wouldn't want you to see some of the uh, some of the scenes in this movie but it's called the three billboards outside Ebbing Missouri I think it got awards a couple years ago it's not a great movie but it is a great presentation of the consequences of anger and the point is I think the thesis they're presenting in this objet dar that's this artsy film what they're trying to present is everybody gets angry and makes bad choices in their anger and that everyone just needs to count to 10. That's the whole point of the film, uh, if you want to take anything wisdom wise away from it. Not provoking our children to anger is Paul's focus. And so we want to say, well, what are the other things we shouldn't lead them to do? Let's just start there and think about it. Now, here's what I don't think it means. My next thing in the notes, and there's space in there for you to write if you want. What does it not mean to provoke our children to anger? Oh, little Jimmy's not going to like that. Better not do that. Right? This is not talking about the child becomes the parent. Or that the child now usurps parental authority and we make our decisions based on the child's preferences. That's not what he's talking about at all. Little Jimmy needs to learn that it's not about him. Right? And that's the, that's the hardest thing in the world because we're arrogant in our sin nature and we think it's about us. And there's an anger uh, potential in all of us that when someone shows us the mirror and says, hey, you think it's about you? Isn't that nasty? Do you see yourself? We get angry when we see ourselves sometimes. He's not talking about not training the children. 
He's talking about when you are exasperated, you need to handle you because bringing your anger to them is not going to solve it, apparently. Because watch the, the, the contrast. He says, Do not provoke them to anger, but rear them, bring them up, nourish them in the instruction and corrective discipline of the Lord. You have a job regarding child training, and this will stop you from doing your job. It's anger or instruction. Those are the, that's the opposition. I'm not trying to get more out of the passage than it says, but I do want to say um, anger apparently short-circuits the process. Now, the Apostle Paul, I don't know anything about his parenting skills, or he never heard James Dobson radio broadcasts or any of that stuff. He never read any of the great books that have been written based on what he says. But he does have the Holy Spirit inspiring what he writes. So I think this should be where we focus our attention. This should be where, where our attention goes in terms of parents' responsibilities. Now, the word bring them up. We've gone from par, par, par or gizo to cause them to be angry to ektrefo, to, to bring them up. Uh, I looked this word up, and um, I also looked up its, its uh, parent word, trefo, which is the verb T-R-E-P-H-O, um, which is a bigger word. Ektrefo is an intensifier, like um, somehow. And I think it means at, the way ek works to bring them out, to, to raise them out because they're going. They're, you're raising them and, and you're inflicting them upon the world. <laughs> Arrows in your quiver, if you will. So ektrefo is um, to bring them up. And I want to uh, say that the main word trefo has as its um, root or a main meaning to nourish or to feed. If you feed a plant, it grows. Feed a child, he grows. But it's not about physical food. Because of what he's going to say next, how and what sense you nourish your children. Bring them up. What is involved in this responsibility? This is where I think we really blow it because we're careful to make sure they eat. We're careful to make sure they have shelter and clothing and they get everything and they're on the bus on time at 7.15 we do all these things that culture tells us amount to raising them, nourishing them. But what Paul is going to do is tell us that you can't, you haven't even started if that's all you've done. You've served them up to the world, if that's all we do, is we just feed them and let them run with their friends. We haven't begun to nourish, raise, train up, to educate, equip them. And so... He says that there's a specific sense in which you do this, and this is the answer to what's involved in the responsibility, the instruction and corrective discipline of the Lord. The instruction and corrective discipline of the Lord, uh, two-thirds down on your notes. What does this mean in the instruction and corrective discipline? The first word, instruction, is your Greek word paideia. Paiduo is to instruct a little child in little child things, to train up a little child. And paideia is the instruction that you give a little child. So this is definitely talking about parents with children in the household that are learning to be mature, learning to be adults. It's not talking about adult children. It's talking about children in the household that you're training. And, it, and, and as I said last time, there are different ways. I mean, as they grow, they have, they have different needs for that instruction. 
they need they need some a little bit of 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 slack in the in the lead in the training lead so that they can practice and then that you can bring them in and say okay how'd the practice go and and talk them through and teach them to think that way oh and they're always criticizing me no i'm the trainer who is instructing you to show you how to do this and the method i'm using now is you go through the practical exercise and then we review and look at what happened and that's that's involved in paideia and the kind of training that we see here but it's a general term. It's a very general word, training of little children. But it's for the Lord. It's in the Lord. It's His training of little children. So what do parents need to do who are going to train little children? If they're going to do it for the training of children in the Lord, what do they need to be? What, what's the requirement for parents? Why, why don't the parents of our culture do this? What's missing? Yeah. They don't have the Spirit of God saturating them with the Word of God so that they know what the little children need to think, know, and do, and be as they grow up. See, if you've got children, little, think about this with me, little kids, as soon as they can contemplate, I'm me and you're you, the, as soon as they're relational, we're bringing them into a relationship with God. Oh, they can't understand abstract concepts like the, the invisible God. Except that they're made to. They're designed for it. He set eternity in their hearts. And most of you know from experience, you can. You tell them about the Lord early. I've told you many times, I learned about what death is in the concept of the gospel. Oh, well, they don't know about death yet, so you can't tell them that Jesus died for their sins. What? Why would that not be a desirable way? See, I, the infant baptism thing that early church tried to pick up, make sure everybody was saved because they thought the water saved you. I mean, I get the desire to help kids from the very earliest time that they can understand the things of God. But it isn't from water. It's from the Word. It's from the, from the truth and knowing God. So, so we start young. What do, what do all Christians need to do about their sins? What do Christians need to do when they commit personal sins? Let's say you've got a little, little believer. I was, my four-year-old was bugging me and bugging me and bugging me to get baptized because he saw his brother get baptized. I said, no, you won't remember. Oh, yes, I will. Or, oh, yes, I will. Or whatever, you know. Five, five years old. Please, please, I promise, I understand. I can tell you the whole thing. Five years old. They're a precocious little kid. It's okay. He wants to get baptized. I, I, I did. I regret doing it, kind of, because he still was a little, little bit young. But we got good pictures, and we, we made a big deal and talked about it. The reason I was concerned is because I was afraid he wouldn't remember. It's not that I don't think he's a Christian or shouldn't demonstrate that and proclaim it as the first step Christians take to proclaim their faith through baptism. But, but I want to get baptized. I want to get baptized. I want to say it. I want to say I'm a believer. That little Christian commits personal sin. How long should we wait before we teach him, you need to go with your prayer to God for that cleansing that God alone gives you through the blood of Jesus? How long should I wait before the kid adopts a habit of mind that he's accountable to God for every choice he makes and he needs to take it to him so that God will be working in his life and he won't be running from God as a Christian in carnality? How long before I teach him to confess his sins? How often will I train a little child the habit of mind of, hey, God thinks what he thinks about this. It'll probably be 300 times per kid that I will walk through 
this is about him and we need to talk to him. You see, and, and, and you need to confess your sins to God right now. And it's, it kind of gets re- repetitive, doesn't it? It gets repetitive, <clears throat> redundant. You find yourself saying the same thing again and again and again and again and again and again. You know what happens? A miracle. They're off on their own at a fairly young age on a playground somewhere. Something happens. And in their own spiritual lives between them and God as a little child, little boy says, I, Father, I did this. I shouldn't have said this. And I didn't walk him through it. I didn't know that he did it. You see what I mean? That's the, I, that's, but you have to train and train and train. Paul David Tripp has a fantastic book on raising your children for the gospel. I think it's 14 principles on child right training for the gospel, something like that. Reformed mega pastor, Paul Tripp. He had a really great point about the privilege of repetition. That this is our job. If you're parents, and think about, think about it. Our job is to constantly show them again and again how to tie their shoes. Again and again how to confess their sins. Again and again the importance of Calm down and listen to what the Word of God is saying. Don't try to get through it. Just let's think through what God is saying and open our hearts and ask Him to help us understand what He's telling us here in the Bible. It's a constant, repetitive thing, and it's a great privilege. Tripp has this image he paints of, a, of the parent who has to go up the stairs one more time. I was just up here. This is my sixth time up here to tell them to knock it off. What's a parent likely to be like on the sixth trip upstairs to say, knock it off? What's going on in my head? My adrenal glands, what's going on? Yeah. So I show up angry. What's that likely to stimulate in these children? Anger. And now it's not about what it's about. Now it's about the anger problem. And that's not helpful. Now I'm not saying that there won't be some corrective physical uh, discipline. And I don't believe uh, spanking children is punishment. I don't think to think of it as punishment. I think of it as training. There's a difference. If my children got what their sins deserved, they would go to the lake of fire instantly because God is God. It's not about me, it's about God. But if I am showing them by nutheteo, by corrective discipline, that this is an undesirable thing and they need to stop it, and they learn from that after the 15th or 20th encounter, um, then, then we have a, a habit of mind being established. But ha- see, the anger is the big problem. Anger is the big problem. Let's go to Nuthesia, N-O-U-T-H-E-S-I-A, Nuthesia, corrective discipline. My Bible translates that um, instruction, which I think is an unfortunate, I mean, the New American Standard says instruction. Nuthetao is to tell somebody that when they're out of line to correct someone who's out of line. It's the most um, difficult type of ministry when you love someone and you see them going down the wrong track and you kind of come alongside them. You don't go down the track very far with them. You say, hey, could you come talk to me? And you put your arm around them and you say, look, I'm not perfect and I know I'm a sinner, but I also have eyes and I'm working on me, but I, I just want to tell you what I see about you. And this isn't right. And here, here's the line, and you're way over here. You're out of line. You're stepping over something that God doesn't want you to do. And that corrective instruction is something uh, believers do in love in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. It's hard. It hurts. We don't want to nutheteo someone. We don't want to correct them. 
and confront them, confront them with the sin problem. Because immediately, we have a bad habit of mind. What do we say? Well, you're no better. We flip it on them and make it about, you're rejecting me as a person. No, I, I, I'm fully uh, invested in you succeed, succeeding as a person, and this is destroying you. And that takes a certain maturity to be able to do that. We like to throw people away who disappoint us. You can't do that if you're going to walk with the Spirit, walk by the Spirit in how you love other people. But nuthesia is not simply instruction. It's corrective discipline. It's, the, it's what is necessary to show someone the error of his or her ways. And it hurts. It hurts the person doing it. It's on, this is going to hurt me a lot more than it's going to hurt you. you know, it, it hurts uh, the other person. And you have to think this all through. You have to be prepared to do it and recognize it as a duty. This is not something parents uh, do because they're micromanagers or helicopter parents hovering over their kids. This is something parents do because they're commanded to and they want to obey the Lord Jesus Christ out of love for Him. It turns out this is the most loving and wonderful thing they can do for their kids. Okay, so as we close, I want to talk about the nature of these commands for the household. They're always general commands. And we are looking very often for specifics. Now, it's pretty specific about anger, provoking your child to anger, but then raise them up in the instruction and the corrective discipline of the Lord. Well, that's make a disciple of your kid. And it, it, it will involve, at times, corporal punishment. But, uh, but you have to do this. Right alongside Proverbs, this is the wisdom of the Christian spiritual life, uh, echoing a lot of what Proverbs will say. But you have a general statement of the expectation, and then we all live our lives and fill in the details with the specifics, right? How, like that sixth time up the stairs, and then I think it through. That's a very specific illustration or application of what we're talking about, about not provoking them to anger. I think all the instruction in the household code involves general precepts that require thought as to how to do the specific things. You have to think it through. And that's how God works. He doesn't say, here's your cookbook, and if you, make it, if you do exa- exactly every step, like I say, you get a perfect souffle. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He says, here's the general thing, and you're going to have to think this through and work it. So I have a strategy for application, and it is the need for wisdom in James chapter 1, which tells you when you find that you need wisdom, what are you supposed to do? Ask God. What do we call that asking God business? Prayer. That's the, I'm often challenged, you're just telling people to read the Bible and pray. Well, let's start there. And then once we're done with that, we'll do the other things that the Bible doesn't say. Start with the reading the word of prayer. God speaks the word, I speak back in prayer. That sounds like a relationship to me. So this is what I mean. You're going to do this. We're going to fulfill these commands and live this out in the power of the Holy Spirit in a personal relationship with God, and we're going to ask for wisdom for these details. Your prayer is that you might do what God has revealed in His will for you. Isn't that the prayer that God promises to answer in the affirmative? When God says, this is what I want, that's His will, and you pray in accordance with His revealed will, isn't that one that you expect to be successful at? I mean, God is honored and pleased when you go to Him and ask for what He said He wants. This is Jesus teaching on prayer. Ask according to my Father's will. And that's what we need to do. Pay attention to what God's will is and then be on board with him in your prayer life. Father, I want to raise my children in the instruction and the discipline of the Lord. I want to succeed at this. Don't let me fail. God, I don't know what this looks like in this specific instance. Give me wisdom. Do you know how many times I have to pray that prayer as a pastor when people come to me with questions? 
big things that are the specific details the scriptures don't tell you about the specific. Immediately, I'm like, I'm doing the Nehemiah thing. You don't see me praying, but I'm praying. God, I need wisdom here. I don't know what to say on the specifics, but you know what is necessary, so direct me in your word. Help me understand. Help me think this through. So this is the moment-by-moment walk with God. This is how your relationship with God bears fruit in these relationships. Your prayer is a concrete way to obey all the household commands, especially for those in higher authority. Think about it. How will I love my wife? God, help me. How do I, what does she need? What can I do? Talk to God about it. He's going to make you successful. How can I train my children? How can I be a good boss? I don't know how to go in and come out. All the leaders in the Bible, I know we're over time here, but all the leaders in the Bible always say, God, I'm not adequate to the task. Moses says, I can't do it. God says, I'll do it through you. I'll be with your mouth. I made your mouth. I'll be with your mouth. You can do it. This is how leadership has to work. We have to say, God, you've given me the general things. Don't let me mess up. Let me be successful. That's what he wants you to do. He hasn't given you the specifics because he wants you to call out to him for wisdom. Your prayer invites God's guidance into your moment-by-moment thinking about how to do what he's asked you to do. And so much different than putting this away and saying, well, we got to not provoke our kids to anger and raise them in the fear and instruction, the discipline and instruction of the Lord. What we need to do is take this as a challenge to constant prayer. And this is a time for you to do this right now. There are people in your life, maybe children, maybe grown children, maybe pastor's children, <laughs> that you can pray for wisdom right now as to how you can be part of this process, this program of disciple making. I'll give you a moment for silent prayer as we close to think this through. And then I'll close us down in prayer for our household of households and this responsibility. Father, every child in our lives represents two parents who have been given a sacred charge to walk by your spirit as how they, how they train them. Father, restrain us. Constantly calibrate our consciences about the anger problem where we don't provoke the children to anger so that they can learn. Let us not become beholden to their arrogance and hide from the truth, but in love, regardless of how they feel about us, tell them the truth and love them with it. Father, our prayer is for our children to be successful in your eyes, that your son would say well done at the judgment seat of Christ. And our only hope is that you give us wisdom to do this, to, to lead them, to direct them, to encourage them in the capacity you've provided for us. We need your wisdom, Father, and we expect you, based on your grace and your, your, your word, we expect you to fulfill this request for wisdom and bring about this outcome that you desire. Glorify yourself through how we raise and train our children. We pray in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. All right, uh, we will start at 1030, so you better hurry. (laughs) Amen.